Uh, it's it's really what the theme has been, and you picked He Lives, <laughs> and the hope of all who seek Him. That's one of the phrases in that hymn that we sang at the beginning tonight. The hope of all who seek Him. And as I think about that, I think the Lord is uh, very much the one who, uh, if we'll seek Him in the midst of sometimes great trials, um, He'll be glorified and He will make a way. He does. And we're going to read verses, uh, we're in Jeremiah chapter 29. We've been in this section for a number of um, weeks now. And we're going to come to uh, this section here, verses, actually it's going to be 11 to 14. And let's just pick that up here tonight. For I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for the hope that it has here. And we want to ask now you minister to our, our hearts and our, in our time even together this evening. And Lord, we lift up even these uh, prayer requests that have already been mentioned tonight and certainly commit all of them to you. But Lord, as we prepare our hearts for prayer this evening, I would ask that first and foremost we'd seek you and we would call out to you as you've promised to answer. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to this section of scripture and you have this, uh, again, in the context, the backdrop is Babylon. And this letter or portion of Jeremiah, which is a letter the Lord told him to write and to send off to those that were carried away captive in Babylon. And these are the same ones who, when they sat down by the rivers of Babylon, they wept. They had no song in their heart. It seemed as though everything had been stripped away and it had been so sudden. And they find themselves there and, and the people around them saying, sing a song of Zion. And I'm sure they weren't doing it because they were followers of God, the, the people asking that. They were doing it to mock. They were doing it there to see if there was any truth or joy in things. And yet we find them, there were those that did diligently seek the Lord in the midst of all that. Sometimes these things come our way and we don't know what to do. I spent yesterday morning for a good portion of it talking to one of my good friends there, Calvin Hood, and I mentioned him on Sunday. He received some hard news last week that he's got an aggressive brain tumor. He's, he's in his mid-50s, you know. And he doesn't know how long he's got. And I mean, he's a believer, uh, a grandfather, just really getting into that and everything else. And, and now he's got this news that his days here on earth are probably short, shorter than, than he expected. And we, we had some good times talking yesterday and, and shared some good memories and tried to encourage him best I could. And, you know, he said to me, he says, really, there's nothing you can say, is there? And I said, no, there really isn't. There's nothing you can really say when somebody receives that kind of news that he, he has a, an aggressive brain tumor and it's not something that is operable. And, and they've given him anywhere from 
a few months to maybe 15, 18 months. I don't know. Some people respond to certain treatments, some don't, some can't. But that's kind of the timing he's been given. He said, we're making the most of every day. He and his wife and uh, all the things that have come their way. And and I just say that because sometimes you get that kind of hard news. And uh, someday, each and every one of us, if you haven't already, you'll face that kind of news that comes along. I remember years ago when I went to Ukraine and we were uh, getting to know some of our co-workers that were there. And uh, there was a, a couple of single missionaries that were uh, from Germany, actually, uh, two ladies that had uh, joined our team. And and one day we were ch- chatting at uh, the table, and um, I remember uh, one of them, Elizabeth, uh, she had been a missionary, actually, in Kenya for a while. And when she first went to Kenya, uh, all full of zeal and zest and everything else, and she, she landed in Kenya, she had a, a fixed amount of money that she had raised for the, her stay there in Kenya and she took a portion of that to go set up her first apartment because you know you're setting up in a foreign country you got to buy a few things and she spent all that she was budgeted and had for that and got it all set up and the it was like a day later she came back to that apartment and someone had stolen everything broken in and stolen everything she sat down in the middle of that empty apartment and just wept and wondered if maybe she wasn't in God's will and I remember her telling that story and and realized that God was in it, and God used her during that time, used her in Ukraine and later in Russia and other places as well. And I just say that because sometimes we feel like this bad thing that's come my way, I just certainly can't be in keeping with where God wants me to be right now. And, and the truth is, He does want us to tr- go through trial. And sometimes we can't choose that. Uh, these that were carried away to Babylon did not necessarily choose that they would be the ones to survive the captivity and the uh, bring brought off to a foreign land and find themselves plunked down there and having to make a life there. And yet that's often what God calls believers to do, doesn't he? I think of that in the context of uh, men like Abraham, right? Uh, we've looked at Abraham a number of times, and you can't go through Scripture without mentioning Abraham, right? He is, he's a picture for us of a, of a sojourner, one who traveled through this life. And you know what? He was a man of faith, but yet a man that never really had his roots here. Sometimes we want our roots here, right? Hebrews 9 says this of Abraham, By faith he dwelt in the land of the promise, as in a foreign country. But wait a minute, that foreign country, that, that was the land that God had promised him and told him to go and and reside in you'd think that would be home right but not for abraham he dwelt there and look what it says dwelling in tents i'm thankful i don't live in a tent i have lived in a tent before and i have stayed in a tent i stayed in a tent a whole summer almost one time and uh you know a tent is you can try to make it home you can do that but especially this time of year it doesn't feel very warm and you know it's pretty hard living and uh, there's not the conveniences of a, of a permanent dwelling place. And yet we see in the picture of Abraham, we see in the picture of, of really all those that by faith follow the same God of Abraham, is that we live in a world where you have sometimes uh, a tent around you. That's it. And yeah, we may live in a house, but it's not permanent. You know what I mean? And... Uh, one thing that I remember reading years ago about Abraham and Sarah and the writer of a little devotional, he said, don't get your tent pegs in too deeply, you know. 
And sometimes we do. We put our tent pegs in real deep like this is a permanent dwelling place. No, it isn't. Sometimes God calls us to go through certain trials. Sometimes he calls us to give up things. Sometimes those things are stripped away from us and there's nobody really there to to stand with you except the Lord. Abraham knew that. Ray Pritchard on his comments on uh, Jeremiah 29, I was reading through that and he talked about Abraham and he said this, with Abraham, when he entered into the promised land, there were no welcome signs. He walked into a land that God had promised him, but that was inhabited by other people. And it was Abraham's land, all right? He even did sign a title deed in that, in the death of Sarah and all kinds of things. But you have really no welcome sign. And I hate to say it, that for the believer, there's often no welcome sign, okay? You show up and sometimes to a guy who's maybe going through a great trial in the middle of the night, his house is burned and all that, and he doesn't look at you and say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Sometimes he says, I get lost, you know, or something like that. And often that's the way it is. You go to Kenya as a missionary, and they don't have a big parade for you when you land. No, they take your stuff. Hmm. Are you still in God's will? Were the people that were in Babylon, were they in the will of God? I mean, that's the question. And, and according to what God says, they were. Look what he says. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you. It was God that drove them there. He did it for many reasons, but he was doing it to chastise a nation. He was doing it to correct a nation in spiritual things, but he was doing it to correct individuals. He was doing it also to get glory and all that because he was going to use those in captivity later and those that had been carried away originally and their descendants even to bring glory to his name. We've looked at that in the last year, right? You looked at like the book of Esther, right? Those were the Jews that didn't come back. And did God glorify his name even though his name's not even in the book of Esther? Yeah, he did. All through that book, you can't help but just say the Lord is big and he's, he's so much in control. He can take a Gentile uh, nation and he can install his own ruler and a key person like Esther in that way. And he can topple and make somebody uh, who thought they were important not of any importance. And he can install his own man like Mordecai or Daniel or whoever else. And God can do that. And, and you say, well... I don't think man could have done that. You know, you couldn't have. You couldn't have shown up one day and then knocked on the gate of Babylon and said, I'm here to take over your land, all right, as an individual. Couldn't do it. But God could take an individual out of that and he could raise him up and put him right in command of all kinds of stuff. And he did. But there aren't always, for the believer, there aren't welcome signs hanging there. We're glad you're here. Uh, no housewarming party sometimes when you land somewhere. There's no really... Um, any ticker tape parade or, or something like that. I don't think they do tipper, ticker tape parades anymore because there's no ticker tapes, right? But, you know, those were done back in the days uh, for that. We have here the story of, uh, like I said, of, like of Abraham. And here it says that he dwell, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and the heirs with him of the same promise. He gave, the Lord gave them a promise and the promise was certainly attached to the land because you read it in Genesis chapter 12 and definitely it was associated with the land of Canaan. He made a covenant with him. 
but it was beyond that land. And that's where you come to the book of Hebrews and you know that Abraham was looking beyond that. And so were his heirs. And the promise he received was more than that. And so as he was sitting in that tent, he was uh, no doubt having to even, you know, not always perfectly in faith, but he, he was certainly looking ahead further than the tent that he lived in and even the land that God had given him. The same is true with Jesus and for the followers of Jesus. When you think of Jesus and his example in the Gospels, Luke chapter 9, verse 57, says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road. <laughs> Boy, have you been on the road? <laughs> All right. Sometimes go the road of life, right? That someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Be careful when you say things like that, okay? Sometimes God will turn right around and say, okay, will you? Let me, let me put you to the test. Let me, let me just test you here. That's happened to Abraham. You think of Abraham. He was called, Genesis chapter 12, and given a covenant with, and God told him he'd bless him and bless his descendants. And then in verse 10 or so, there's a famine. Just the time where Abraham had finally landed and he was making a name for himself and prospering and things, there's a famine. Isn't that the way it is? Sometimes when we think spiritually where things are going really well, all of a sudden something comes and we think, oh, why did this awful thing happen now? In the time of, you know, why would my, my friend Calvin, you know, in his mid-50s, he was looking forward to retirement. I remember sitting with him a couple years ago and, and we're sitting across a table in a little um, restaurant in New Brunswick and, and he was debating on about where to go, his next step in ministry. And, and, and I remember him looking and, and saying, you know, we're just looking forward to getting to the retirement. Well, that might not be the possibility now. And you have to stop and say, is there something beyond this? What, what about 100 years from now? What about 1,000 years from now? What about 10,000 years from now? Is it going to matter what I'm going through right now? Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Guess what the first requirement is for being a disciple of Christ? Be willing to move. Be willing to lie down somewhere where you're in a strange bed or on a strange pillow or in maybe a place like, you know, out in the field living with your disciples around a campfire. I, I don't know all the places Jesus lived, but he didn't own a home. I'm thankful I own a home. Thankful I have a place to go tonight. That certainly could be stripped away in a moment, right? I mean, as Al was mentioning earlier. That could happen. But you know what? If I'm a follower of Christ, I can sit there and say, all right, I can still follow you, Lord. After all, you didn't have a place to lay your head. And then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Boy, the affairs of this life, right? Sometimes I just got to step out here, Lord, and I, I can't follow you right now. It's not convenient. And then Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and preach the kingdom of God. There are sacrifices made in some cases uh, when you want to follow the Lord and you will not be able to do the things that you want to do. Uh, I remember a number of times in my own life where God has given that, put me to the test in doing that. There's been times I've been able to go and I want to use that as an illustration, you know, be involved in someone that you love that's died and be involved in their life and, uh, and then, then their death comes and, and I haven't been able to go. I haven't been able to go. You know, I, that's a hard thing. And I'm sure some of you face that as well. 
I remember sitting with Brent Tardy. Brent was, uh, he, he died in 1999, age 26, liver cancer. And it was inoperable at the time. And I remember going, we were getting ready to leave for Ukraine. We had planned for months to go on a certain date. And we'd bought our tickets and we were leaving and heading out in October of 1999. And I remember uh, just before we left, about a week before, I went to visit Brent and Sonia over there in Parham and my wife as well and I, I went and Brent had cashed out his life insurance policy because he was terminal and they bought a new vehicle so his wife would have a new vehicle and he said let's go for a drive and he grabbed me and said let's go for a drive and you know I said to him I said Brent uh, he only had weeks to live about six weeks I think from that moment to the time he died and I said to him I said he was my best friend you know best man in my wedding I was best man in his wedding and I looked at him and I said Brent probably won't be able to come to your funeral he says that's okay he says don't worry about that and uh, that hurt greatly I sat and cried and wept that night I received news that he had passed and uh, I thought Lord I I can't go to his funeral but Lord I'm I'm, I'm following you it hurts but I'm following you I'm going to still follow you and that's what we do sometimes. And I'm thankful it's not always like that. I'm thankful that a lot of times we've been able to, to do those kind of things. But sometimes you just have to make the priorities. And then another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. <laughs> and, and this is interesting because I've always been able to say goodbye to people, but there's times I, I, I haven't as well to say, before I go, let me just get this in order and this and this and this and this. No. That's why when Paul later would say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, uh, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then he says, he that wars does not entangle himself with the affairs of this life, that it may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. Can you imagine you're at the battlefront and the commander says, go and take that hill. Hold on, I got to go talk to my mother. I got to go talk to my father. I got to go talk to my brother. I got to go say goodbye, maybe to my high school buddies or, or whatever else. I mean, you don't have that option, that liberty at that moment, or else if you do, you aren't an effective a servant in that way. And, and that's the case. And then Jesus goes on, he says, But Jesus said to them, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And that's a verse that disturbs me greatly. I will say that tonight because it does. It disturbs me because as I look in my own life, I spend too much time looking back and not enough time looking beyond this life. Looking at my present circumstance, looking at how quickly things go, all these different things, and then, and then not focusing on where we're going, you know, where I'm headed. And I have to say, Lord... I don't think I'm fit right now for this, you know? And he has to turn me around and say, go. And that's the great thing about repentance. It's a turnaround. And it's a great thing that he allows us to do that. And he's making a bold statement there. It isn't a comfortable statement. I I certainly am not comfortable with it. And yet God uh, uses that here. And you see that in back there in Jeremiah where he's saying, uh, seek me with a whole heart, right? That's what we're called to do. That's what they were called to do. And they weren't going to do it while they were in Jerusalem. They were going to do it while they were in Babylon. I'll move over. We talked about Genesis there, but let me just uh, get out of, out of Genesis. I think of Daniel. 
I've used this illustration several times, and it is a familiar story to you. But in Daniel chapter 6, you have the account of, remember, the signing of the law that said you had to, to not pray anymore, okay? If you, and that, that's basically what the law was, and Daniel knew it. And it says, and when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, and his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day, three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since his early days. I re- and Daniel's in his 80s at this point, and Daniel, from uh, as a young man, all the way through to his 80s, that was his custom, that was his habit. He had a prayer life. Had a prayer life. I had an email um, came just recently from a friend, and we haven't seen each other in a lot of years, and he uh, he just said, uh, I need someone to be accountable to, and 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 he he said I'm going to send a he'd like to send a chart every week to me with some things he can check off, like prayer time and worship and and you know those little things, and I I thought that's good, that really is good. Probably all should do that, you know. Don't necessarily have to give it to somebody, but check it off every week and say, am I doing okay in my prayer life? Am I doing okay in my walk? How am I dealing with the mind, the battle that goes on there? How am I dealing with the heart? How am I, how am I loving people? You know, all those kind of questions that come. And sometimes I can't check those off. And it's certainly life's more than a check mark, but it's, it's this, that when you're doing that, you're saying you're shooting for a goal. And you've heard the analogy, you know, that if you, if you shoot at nothing, you hit it every time. That seems to be so often how I walk in, our, in, the, in my spiritual walk. And like, what's my goal here? What, what's my outcome? Where, where am I going? And I, I have to ask that. Well, Daniel knew, and I do know as well. And I'm thankful he turns me around. Listen, then the, uh, it says, these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Guess what Daniel was doing? He was doing what God wanted him to do. God told Jeremiah, write a letter, tell him to pray. Daniel took that pretty seriously. I'm glad for that. Daniel 6, verses 25, 28. I love this. Because remember what happens in the meantime? They take Daniel. The law is the law. He's violated the law. He's got to be thrown into the den of lions. He goes into the den of lions, but... Though the law demanded he be thrown in there, and the assumption was he'd be eaten by lions, and remember King Darius was terribly upset about it because he loved Daniel, thought he was a great man, didn't realize this law that they passed was going to catch Daniel. But God had a different plan. God kept the lions from eating Daniel. And Daniel had a good night's sleep when the king didn't. And you know what happens? The king turns his eyes toward the Lord. Probably the first time in Darius' life that he realizes that he's not the king of the universe, but God is. And look what he says. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make it decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. 
oh, I, I could just stop right there and preach a whole message on those verses. I won't. Don't worry. We'll get done tonight. But, you know, I, I'm thinking about this. Here is this king. He makes a decree about the God of Daniel. And he's telling all the people of his kingdom and all the people of the earth, if they were there to listen, he, he was going to send messengers out to them. You fear and you worship the living God of Daniel. And, and yet, wait a minute. That wasn't part of probably the plan for Daniel's life in his own mind. Daniel didn't choose to get taken away captive. He didn't get, you know, choose to have to grow up in a foreign land around a whole pagan system under a number of different rulers. All the things that went on, the constant idolatry, the constant uh, uh, temptation to partake of the little dainties of the Babylonians that would have been perfectly acceptable in their culture, but not for a Jew. You know, all that was a constant battle all the time for Daniel's whole life. And yet, here you have, it's all worth it because a king says, God's big and you guys better worship him. And how did God do that? He did it through a trial. I think he can do that through anything if we'll let him. Paul puts it this way in Acts 17, God who made the world and everything that's in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. You know what he's saying? Um, and this is from a Jew, right? Paul's a Jew. And he's talking to the Athenians. He's walking around Athens. He sees all these temples with all the different gods. And then he sees the one to the unknown God. I mean, they were so religious, they had to even put an unknown one in there just in case. They missed one. And Paul picks up on that and he takes it and he says, I love this, he just says, God's so big, he doesn't dwell in temples. That was a novel idea for the Greek. Because for them, their whole idea of a deity, so they came off a mount, right? Mount Olympus, came down to their realm, and then they met in temples with men and women. But no, this God, the God of Paul, the God of the Jews, the God of who is creator of all things and sustainer of all things, he's so big, he doesn't need a temple. I'm glad. I think that's good theology. We often call like the church the house of God or the church building the house of God. And I, I kind of understand that. It's a respectful term, but this building doesn't contain God. And if it ever starts to in your mind, we're in trouble. All right? Because the building and the premises become more important than the, the Lord that they might represent or who we come to serve, right? Be careful of that. <clears throat> Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. I love that. It's, again, good theology. Paul comes right from the biblical foundation of who the Lord is, and he begins teaching them of the omnipotent, omnipresent God. Oh, I'm thankful for that. All right, well, we're almost out of time here, but... Um, Again, I want to read these verses from Jeremiah 29, 11 to 14, keeping these things in mind. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. All right? You say, well, how am I going to get that future and a hope? Well, he says it. He says, then, yet future, you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. I'm so glad that tonight when we go before the Lord, he'll listen to us. He'll listen to us. The God of the universe will listen to me and you. 
And you will seek me and find me. Now there's a connection here. When you search for me with all your heart. Now he's writing to people who knew the word of God. These were not total strangers to the word of God or to the God of the word. They were people that maybe needed to be revived and turned back in the right direction, but they already knew him in a way. They had a knowledge of God and they're working with him. And I think that verse is a key verse to believers, okay? Or to people who are uh, at least God-knowing, all right? God-fearing or, or whatever. There are people with some knowledge of that. And I say that because, you know, I do believe God does honor that often from even somebody who is has no knowledge of, of the one true God, that they seek some measure of truth and God will send them things and send them people. And he, he, there's many anecdotes of that. But I do think, generally speaking, according to the book of Romans, that we don't seek him, Right? We, there's none, and Isaiah said that, there's none that seeketh after God. None that doeth right. In left to our own sin, we won't find God on our own. We never do. It's really God revealing himself to us and then man trusting him by faith. But he says to believers, he says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I have to just stop and park myself there sometimes and say, Lord, I, I need my heart to be focused on you today and just to seek you and no one else. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. You know what? He's saying there's an end. (laughs) I'll give you a future and a hope. And there's an end to this captivity. There's an end to these trials. There's an end to this misery you might find yourself in. And there's instead a place of rest a dwelling place and i think again that that's beyond the land it's beyond jerusalem it's it's with the lord himself in heaven right that's the great hope we have let's pray father we thank you for your word and for this section here in jeremiah ask that you would continue to help us to think on these things and thank you that if we will seek you with our whole hearts you will certainly be found and lord i thank you that as we pray to you, you listen. And Lord, you do give us a future and a hope. And I commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.